With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg of this podcast. Uh, uh, you may know me from such films as Zinc and You, Partners in Freedom. Um, I am here today uh, uh, because this is my job, and um, uh, we uh, we've had a lot of heavy lifting on this podcast of late. You know, we talked about the crisis of liberalism with Francis Fukuyama, and uh, we talked about heady global affairs issues with H.R. Uh, McMaster. Um, and we talked about the state of race and cross-cultural comparisons with, uh, um, Thomas Chatterton Williams. And so, um, in the, in the same spirit in which, uh, Senator Roman Ruska said in response to claims that a Supreme court nominee was mediocre, um, oh. we need to have, uh, oh. mediocre people need representation too. Oh, <laughs> I, man. I joke, I, I kid because I love, <laughs> uh, no, I am, I am, I am here, uh, with, with none other than, uh, Christopher Starwalt of the dispatch and of the American enterprise Institute and of my heart, um, because, uh, there has been, we've, we've given short shrift to the rank punditry of late and, um, and we need to sort of dive deep into um, things closer to home. And uh, so uh, there's no one I would rather have on here than fan favorite Chris Starwalt. Chris, welcome back to the remit. That was like you drove all like you you drove all the way down the road. You were at the end. I saw you had your turn signal on and then you were like, no. And then you backed up and drove all the way back yeah. to to run me over. I think that my standard is the last time I was on with you, um, it was because Francis Fukuyama, you couldn't do Francis Fukuyama. So yeah. I consider that the greatest possible delta uh, in erudition between me and uh, a, a, the, the guest I am filling in for. Uh, it, am I reaching that kind of a height this time, or did you really think of me first? I really thought of you first. And, wow. I, and, I, will, and I, will, I will say this. Look, I mean, look, I think neither of us can hold a candle to Fukuyama's ability to talk intelligently about... Um, but Andre Kojev's uh, interpretation of Hegel. I think yeah. we're just going to we're just going to cede that territory. We're not going to even fight for that hill. <laughs> um, but uh, I would say, in raw podcast skills, you are far his superior. And well, I don't mean that as an insult to Francis Fukuyama. And, it's right, just, and all, it's, it's, it's I'm, not his metier. Let's say I'm also I'm also far his superior. Uh, I, I believe I'm going to say uh, in my barbecue skills. I think there's a lot of places where I'm probably possible beating francis fukuyama one of the great intellectuals of the past 50 years so take that yeah. see and there's an important metaphysical lesson here since we're talking about francis fukuyama 
if you reduce all of existence down to monocausal factors like identity politics, mm -hmm. then you don't give people opportunities to feel comparative self-esteem by being better than somebody else. So yeah, Francis Fukuyama is a better political theorist than we are. Fine. <laughs> but like, I know a lot more about the odd couple than he does. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, we could name more uh, guest stars on the love boat in five minutes than he could. Absolutely. Probably. Probably. Absolutely. And I, and, 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 you know, and I would guess there were actually some substantive, his, you know, eggheady things that we could go toe to toe with him a little bit on, but like, you know, be um, careful. I'm, I feel like we're about to get into a gang war with Francis. I, yeah, we're we're going to, we're going to talk ourselves into trouble. He'll be like, I throw down great barbecue. Number one. And number two, the ropers went on together on love <laughs> boat, uh, two times. And, the uh, and, and, uh, Dr. Uh, Adam Bricker, uh, tried to put the moves on Mrs. Roper. So there. Um, yeah, I don't want to be perceived as calling one of my intellectual heroes that, that I'm sort of like Omar on the wire calling out Marlo by dirtying <laughs> his name on the street. That's not my plan here. Exactly. Although it's funny that you mentioned the Ropers being on, on Love Boat because it just popped into my head. I, I hadn't, you know, like I thought that one of the interesting innovations of the of Married with Children mm -hmm. was flipping on its head um the the sort of normal sitcom marriage dynamic where the husband is always looking for nookie yeah and the wife isn't into it right and yeah, instead yeah, yeah. and married with children and the wife really wants it and the husband just wants to sit on the couch and watch the ball game and it seems to me i hadn't given the ropers credit i think they kind of pioneered that right yes Wasn't for sure that the dynamic of their relationship that, uh and uh mr furley of course played by west virginia's own don knotts mm -hmm. uh was a was a failed swinging bachelor uh right. or a single dude uh but the uh the ropers dynamic was yes that he was not interested that she was a uh and you know what's really funny? I don't know if you've had this experience. I mean, not the Ropers, just to be clear. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, life is long and complicated. But when you see people on, when you think about how old people were when you watch them on television, yeah, 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 and yeah. you thought of people as being like, those people are old, and you're like, they were 43. And you're yeah. like, oh, no. Oh, no. Well, this is the Wilford Brimley line, right? I mean, there was a horrible, evil... Twitter account. Um, I'm, I'm looking up the age right now. So like 53. Wilford Brimley, who Wilford Brimley, you know, the Oats guy, the the postmaster general from Seinfeld. Yes. Um, a fantastic of, actor. Yes. One of the yes. great one of the great character actors of his generation. Really fantastic. I loved Wilford Brimley. He was one of the oldsters in the movie Cocoon. Right. You know, yes, where he was like, like the, the lead. He was like the lead oldster. Yes. Yeah. They were like in the like we're living in the villages kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. He was 50 years old, nine months and six days. <laughs> oh, you got me. Oh, you got me. And there was a Twitter account called the Brimley Cocoon Line or something like that. Yep, yep, yep. That the second f public figures passed that date, that age, they would announce it. So I got nailed by it a few years ago. Um, it's particularly cruel. It's, but I, I will also say this, and I will get right to the rank punditry is, uh, right after this, I promise. As soon but as I drag you into it? Yeah. I, I will say this. The idea of being okay with being old, I am exhausted 
by the people. Like there, there are people who um, I just heard an interview with Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson's about to be seventy, yeah, uh, and he looks great, and it's great, and it's wonderful. He's a he's a rare. That's a rare thing. The pressure on people to never grow old or not be old deprives us of allowing people to be wise, right? That you have to be, you have to acknowledge, like, yes, I have now uh, fewer days left than I have already experienced. And there's wisdom that comes with that. And we don't do it. And all this pressure to be young forever deprives us of wisdom is all I would say. So congratulations on being on the other side of the Brimley line. Forever young. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like the other one that I always think about, I brought this up on Glop a million times, um, is uh, uh, Max von Sydow. Yeah, yeah. Right. Who's been playing an old man since he was in his 20s right and like remember him in the exorcist sure i remember him more in strange brew but yes go ahead yeah (laughs) but he was like 43 years old or something in the exorcist and he played an old man you know the old wizened you know exorcist priest kind of thing and um and he played the same. He basically played the same age in Game of Thrones forty years, years later. later. Um, well, I carried a briefcase and wore a uh, jacket and tie to third grade. Some of us are just always old. Some of us are just always old, and I am one of the people who has always been old. A friend of mine has a nephew who did that and wore a jacket and tie and a blazer and carried a briefcase. And when asked what was in the briefcase, he was like, you know, in second grade, first grade, he would just say, "My documents." And and that child was Roger Stone. And they finally opened the briefcase, and all the only document in it was an X-ray of his left arm that had been broken. (laughs) If somebody ever asks you, "Was your arm broken?" He has proof. He was ready to go. All right, uh, where to begin? So uh, I wrote about the row stuff a little bit. Um, I've been showing, as I was saying in the green room beforehand. Um, I'm getting no credit for my restraint on Twitter uh, for not engaging more on this stuff. Because I I do have, I have sincere empathy for people who sincerely are on the other side of this for for understandable reasons. And like doing the ha ha, you're an idiot stuff just doesn't seem like right or appropriate. And I'm trying to get out of that that line of work. Um, At the same time, I listened to four days now or three days now of Morning Joe. Oh my gosh, Jonah Goldberg, original sin or something, and uh, it is astonishing how bad it the coverage has been. And I I have a soft spot for for Scarborough, but like my favorite was on day one, Joe saying, "This has been a fifty year campaign to overturn a fifty year precedent." I was like, "Wait, wait a second! Like in year one, it was just a one year campaign to overturn a one year precedent." You know, Um, um, but. Like, so imagine, as I think you often do, that uh, I am a very liberal, single, female abortion rights supporter. Sure. Freaking out about all of this. Um, what would you say to them to sort of level set? Never mind reassure, but just, you know, to sort of say, here's why it's not what you think it is, or here's what the politics um, are or are not. Well, the first thing that I think, uh, th- this was like... Um, a dry run uh, for what is going to happen in June or July, at the end of June or July, uh, when we get the actual opinion. And it speaks to how much money has been invested and how much effort has been invested on both sides of this question for 50 years. 
hundreds of billions of dollars. It's um, it's the best wedge issue, even better than guns. This has motivated and hardened into these very intense camps of of hugely um, overwrought uh, supporters and opponents. Um, this is to use the gun analogy when they were going to talking about like, well, maybe there'll be uh, maybe we'll close the non-existent gun show uh, loophole so we can do something. And it was like, this is the end of firearms in America. And we must all chain ourselves to uh, the the uh, local courthouse. Uh, one one thing I, I wish that pro-choice people here would would think about as they go through this process, as we head toward what seems like I'm going to guess, but I would have said this before the leak, what seems like at least a diminution of Roe, uh, an elimination of Casey, something is going to change. And that has been, I, we've talked about it before, people have talked about it before. That's what happens. Uh, as Barack Obama once said, elections have consequences. And uh, it has been a 50-year project, yes, uh, on the American right to overturn a precedent that they hate, right? That they actually sincerely, the people who are pro-life are sincere in their belief. They're not angry at women. Well, some of them are probably angry at women. I don't know. But the the core of the movement is quite sincere and is mostly female, right? When, you, mm -hmm. when you're around the, the uh, anti-abortion movement, uh, you are mostly talking with women. Women dominate that, that, that discussion on the right. So anyway, there are a lot of reasons that somebody might want to live in one state or another. Uh, some states have capital punishment. Other states do not. Some states allow assisted suicide. Other states do not. Some states have good schools. Some states have terrible, terrible, terrible schools. Some states have well-run correctional uh, uh, programs. And other states have nightmarish private prison disasters. We, there are a lot of differences between the states that are very significant and come with moral significance, right? This is this uh, abortion, if it is going back to the states, will not be the only such issue that is significant, moral, important. We let states solve these problems on their own. Uh, and that's one of the, this is not different than capital punishment or assisted suicide or how prisons are run or those other issues in that one sense. So um, I wrote about this. Um, I think it's in the Wednesday G file, which if you were a paid member of the dispatch community, you could read in its entirety. Um, I think it's kind of amazing, right? As, as you know, like for 50 years, maybe with maybe the, maybe, the exception of black voting rights. Yeah. I cannot think of another issue that has been woven deep into the institutional, political, and ideological identity of the Democratic Party and of liberals more than reproductive rights or, or you know, reproductive freedom, whatever we are, or abortion, right? I mean, it is just, uh, you know, so central that. You know, it, it's funny. Trump got dinged for having a litmus test for his Supreme Court of nominees, but Democrats have had litmus tests about Roe sure. for decades. You know, and um, and yet here you have a possible right. We have to remember that the final decision could be very different. But you know, right. let's just and I expect know. it will be. Yeah. So, um, but here we have the first really concrete indication that Roe is going to go overboard and Biden for the first time in his presidency uses the word abortion. And then 
almost immediately switches to these arguments about how they're going to go after interracial marriage. They're going to go after gay marriage. They're going to go after these other things. And, you know, the point I made in the G file was that you would think getting, you know, overturning Roe would be bad enough that you'd think that Democrat, that the activist base, the pro, you know, choice base of the party would say, um, why are you changing the subject to these other things? This in and of itself is bad enough. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And yet my theory is, is that they know that actually talking about abortion in the sort of David Shore sense, the sort of popularism sense, isn't great for Democrats. And at the very least, it doesn't actually attract a lot of new voters. So what they're trying to do is, as the as one of our favorite political scientists, E.E. E. Schottschneider would put it, expand the scope of conflict by <laughs> dragging in other stakeholders. I don't find those arguments, you know, plausible on the legal or constitutional or political merits, but um, um, but it is strange. I mean, do you? What is the political? What is the? Let me put it this way: You're advising Joe Biden, which we both know is super likely. Um, what is the what is the best way to play this this hand that he has been dealt by the Supreme Court League? Well, it, I would advise the president not talk about it at all, uh, or only un, under to certainly say no more um, to keep some remove on this issue um, because the politics of this are probably net beneficial for Democrats in midterm, probably. Um, and simply because think of Tim Ryan in Ohio um, or Mark Kelly in Arizona. You're a moderate Democrat uh, trying to reach out to people who might not want to vote for J.D. Vance, uh, who are uh, independents um, or even some Republicans, maybe some Biden voting kind of Republicans. You want to reach out to these uh, folks. But if you do that, you risk your base, right? You you risk Cleveland, you risk Phoenix, you risk the Democratic urban core centers because the uh, though I did see in Marsha Fudge's old district where there was a much vaunted Bernie Sanders surrogate running against uh, a mainstream Democrat, wasn't even close. So I don't want to overstate the power of the progressive left in these states, but there are there's a number of them, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a... This helps those Democratic Senate candidates and other Democratic candidates who are trying to reach out to the middle because it raises the stakes for the seat, right? So what you're saying to these voters who say, you know, you should be giving us free health care, you should be uh, eliminating student debt, you should be doing these things. It's like, oh, yeah, you want J.D. Vance voting for the next Supreme Court justice? Uh, tell me what you want. So there, there will be a little um, enforcement uh, benefit to Democrats with their base, uh, and I'm sure that there are that there are um, the battle for female swing voters is uh, Democrats have really made these gains. This will probably harden some of that for them uh, at a time where inflation inflation in the economy are, are peeling them off. So I think it is a net net. I would say to Biden, this is like those other issues we talked about, the death penalty, assisted suicide, uh, these other issues. This is hard because of the sincerity, right? It's right. hard because people really feel these things. And if you uh, demagogue them and, and politicize them, if you don't allow for the, if you're the president, 
if you don't allow for the possibility that the people who disagree with you are sincere, uh, you are closing the door in the face of a bunch of voters who might otherwise come your way, uh, or at least be more sympathetic to you. If you and, and there's a lot of, we think back to the 90s and safe, legal, and rare, and what the Clintons figured out about how to talk about abortion um, as Democrats. And it was to make it clear that abortion was a bad thing, but a necessary thing that had to exist for important reasons and that this this was crucial. The move inside the Democratic Party driven by Planned Parenthood uh, and NARAL um, to make it into something to celebrate, let me tell you about my abortion, all of that stuff was what happens when you have, it's like with the NRA, it's what happens when you have an overfunded entity uh, mm. that is on a single subject and it just, it, it gets to be too much. So if I was Biden, I would really focus on treating this as what it is. It's an issue of the heart. It's a it's an issue to have compassion around. And by the way, that goes for, if, especially this time, goes for Republicans. If they can't recognize the real anguish, whether they think it's merited or not, the right. real anguish that people feel around this stuff they are going to close the door in voters' faces. This is really one of those where you have to you have to lead with your heart on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, like you know, the you know, I mean, I wrote about this this year, but like the part of the, I take women who talk about how painful and difficult a decision was to have an abortion at their word, yeah. right? And so it, I'm sure it was whatever you know, and and people can. I'm not trying to get into the argument about whether it was the right decision or wrong decision. And that's not the point. The simple point is, is that most abortion rights supporters who are not bought into one of these categorical ideological tracks um, understand that it's a difficult decision. It's not a joyful thing. And, um, um, and that circumstance, like, and, and, and so giving people space to, acknowledge that political reality that people don't generally like abortion but whether they think it's necessary or not in certain circumstances or not is a different matter and i i think that the the inability of joe biden to just simply take the safe legal and rare yeah. position makes this just an, this could be an enormous advantage for biden to do the i'm the moderate i'm the i'm the old man of the party who you know has wisdom and all that kind of stuff, but it's like he on so many issues. It's like he listens to his grandkids and says, "Who tell him, oh, you have to talk about how great Nickelback is, right?" And so he like talks about things. <laughs> he takes ideologically extreme positions because he thinks that makes him cool and with it and relevant. When he doesn't appreciate the fact that simply by virtue of the fact that he's president of the United States, he is relevant. And he could actually help his party by taking more moderate, considered positions from the middle. And but, but I I think it is yes. I think Biden definitely gets led around by the nose uh, by young staffers and and weirdo cuckoos for sure. But I also think that both parties, when presented with any issue, are now maximalists completely. Sure. Right. So it's uh, if the if the Republicans uh, say well there's uh, they're going to do some mail in voting. In this, well, they're stealing off forever. All every uh, democracy is dead. We have fallen. Uh, they're going to scale back Roe v. Wade. Abortion will be illegal. In it's over. A woman's right to choose has been ended. 
And now they're coming for the next thing. We remember uh, Rick Santorum when they were talking about gay marriage. And it was like, and then guys are going to marry horses. Uh, so there is a tendency to to take things out to the extreme, to demonize the other side, to make it as as potent as possible. And I think what Biden was trying, unsuccessfully, but what he was trying to do was say, you may not be engaged on the question of abortion, but what Republicans want to do is snoop and your whole life, uh, take away your right to privacy. Really, this is what they're they're evil, and they want to come for all your stuff. Yeah, and I agree. That, I agree with that as a as about the institutional symmetry between the two parties of taking these hardline, crazy primary politics driven positions, Fox News driven, MSNBC News driven positions, all that. The difference is the president, right? I mean, oh, to- yes, that's yeah, the first thing. There are all sorts of doctrinaire positions that, you know, Trump pulled off the barbecue and took a leak on. And um, and everyone was just like, okay, that's our new position now, right? You yes. know, and um, when Bill Clinton had the job, you know, he could take a position that forced, you know, in part because of the anatomical structure of the media environment. I thought you were going to say the anatomical structure of Bill Clinton. I was that's like, that's a I, completely different issue. <laughs> um, um, and I wish I didn't have as many talking points as I do exactly, on that. Exactly, exactly. Um, but no, like, I mean, this has been a frustration. You know, we've talked about this a million times. Part of the problem of being a conservative in the media environment is that conservatives are expected to defend whatever the Democrats, I mean, whatever the Republicans do, and liberals are expected to defend whatever right. the Democrats do. That's what get, gets you booked on TV. Right. That's what counts for a debate. So whatever position Biden takes, he will get ample supporters saying this is the smart, wise thing to do in the same way that that happened with every other president of of either party. Um, uh, He just doesn't seem he just seems so scared of staking out that ground. And I think it's a big reason why he can't have nice things. When um, we look back at the presidents of the 21st century, uh, and let's take it all the way back to Bill Clinton, they're at their best when they're loving and compassionate, right? The the good moments. So you, in order to be able to be loving and compassionate as a president, you have to be tough and strong in many areas. You have to be, it has to be clear that you have resolve and that you are resolute in all of those things that are very important and very serious. Uh, but inside that, then the best and most important moments are when you have a heart for your country and you have a heart for afflicted people and you show that. And George, I think back to George W. Bush and the stem cell decision that he had to make that was this had turned into this huge conflagration Mm -hmm. around whether or not embryonic stem cells would be available for research lines. And it all seems kind of quaint now to have that discussion. But when Bush went to make that decision, he did it with compassion for people who disagreed with him, right? Yeah. He made a decision, but he did it in a thoughtful, caring way that acknowledged that the people who disagreed with them legitimately held their view. Um, Trump could do it. But he could only do it for like five minutes, right? He would he would be there. It was at, I forget which school shooting or mass murder it was. And he did it and he was there for like a minute being compassionate. And then somebody was like, uh, the NRA is going to pull your money, bro. So uh, I would not. And he, and he abandoned that. But that's one of the things I hate the term consoler in chief, but one of the things that the president can do is show a heart for the other side and be a president for all people. And Biden missed an opportunity to be there. Um, all right, well, let's move on. I mean, 
um, I know everyone is hungering for more abortion punditry, <laughs> but you know, one of the, the single most of- overinterpreted, the single most overinterpreted thing of the past ten years, maybe it has been amazing to watch the freak out. I guess it was like when you have the obituary pre-written. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. ready to go. Everybody was so in the media world. Everybody was so ginned up for this to happen at some point. It was like, we're, it's happening. It's happening. Just go dump all of our reserves on this debate out on the ground. Um, and yet, again, I, I've been watching a lot of CNN and where I am now a contributor and um, MSNBC. It is shocking in a way that shouldn't be shocking given how cynical and jaded I am. How nobody wants to actually like engage with the actual argument in the decision or in the draft of right. the decision, right? It's, it's They immediately go to policy stuff. They immediately go to slippery slope stuff. And like, if, if you think this is so terrible and so outrageous and all that, you should have, after 50 years of practice, um, some cogent defense on constitutional grounds for Roe. And I think they one of the things that people don't appreciate is that there really isn't one. On As Ruth on, Bader Ginsburg told us. Right. Like, Ginsburg, who wanted to put abortion rights, uh, ground them in e- equal protection rather than privacy, was like, this is, this is a ca- castle on sand. And, um, you know, and anyway, I said we we're trying to get out of this, and you pull me back in. <laughs> So um, there was a uh, primary in Ohio. Oh, yeah. And also in Indiana, which I am told I am supposed to care about. Um, and I don't mean the state. You don't have to. Um, I just mean the primary. I, I like Indiana as a state. Um, uh, Indiana trivia for you. What is unique about uh, the state capital of Indiana? What is unique about Indianapolis? I mean, many things. My sisters were born there. Um, what is unique about Indianapolis? I don't know. Tell me, Jonah. It is the only state capital in America, to my knowledge, that was the site of which was selected because it is the geographic oh, yeah, center yeah, yeah, of yeah, the yeah. state. That's and, right. That's um, a very Indiana thing to do. Yeah. It's also, uh, I believe, has of any city in the country other than, United, uh, other than Washington, D.C., has the most uh, war memorials. Um, I can, I can, that would also be a very Indiana thing to do. Uh, my mom is, a uh, was raised in Indiana, uh, and my, uh, that's where my parents met. My sisters were born. Um, and I love, uh, Indiana. I love Indianapolis. Uh, and by the way, St. Elmo's Steakhouse, uh, excellent. <laughs> is excellent. A, a, a old school classic. Um, one of the last places in the country that still has, at least last time I was there, Bloody Mary's and Iceberg Wedge wedges as appetizers yes or a glass of tomato juice as an appetizer yeah you know you which is like an old juice. 1950s thing you know well if you at the palm if you ask me when you go at lunch they will bring you the relish tray with the pickles and the radishes yeah, yeah, yeah. which i which i appreciate um because it's about health um so indiana is not i mean indiana is not interesting uh politically this cycle particularly i think it sort of behaved True to form. Ohio is interesting. And it's interesting because Ohio is, okay, let's think back to 2016. Where where did Donald Trump perform well in Republican primaries versus where did he struggle? And Ohio is 
a state with that is uh, has a pretty old median age, uh, is a state with a lot of Roman Catholic voters, uh, and is a state with a lot of uh, white voters without college degrees. Um, that's Trump country. That's what we saw when he, the, the difference between Iowa and New Hampshire. He struggles in Iowa, goes to New Hampshire, and those kind of voters go for Trump in a big way. So Ohio is, and Iowa is much uh, pro, very pro-Trump now, but I, uh, Ohio is Trump country, right? If we're talking about what is the Trump coalition in America look like, uh, its capital is going to be like Youngstown. Uh, it's going to be uh, that part of it, more even than eastern Pennsylvania. And Ohio has become, as a result of demographic shifts, so I put it this way, as the population in the United States drains from northeast to southwest, the people who move are who? They're young people because they're mobile and they have, uh, they, they can move and they have the skills uh, and work capacity that is in demand elsewhere. So, the great migration, this reverse great migration that's taking place in the United States, where you have workers who are leaving the North, you know, Florida now has more electoral votes than New York. Uh, so the, the movement South and the movement Southwest um, has had lots of effects on the politics of the South and the Southwest, but it's also had lots of effects on politics of the North and the upper Midwest. And this is why one day Minnesota will be a Republican state. Because and they've for a lot of reasons because of diversity and their economy have have been have lagged. But what we've seen in Michigan and Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, in uh, some other parts uh, of the country, you've seen this shift from blue to red. Right, these blue wall states that became red states. So Ohio is like the poster child. Inside Ohio, though, you have J.D. Vance wins a, a convincing victory um, in in so doing, and I. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what I, why I think that is. But first, Mike DeWine brushed back, no trouble, uh, the challenge from the now, I think we now have to call him uh, a perennial candidate, uh, Jim Renacci, uh, who uh, the guy who had been in Congress, uh, ran for Senate, lost, ran for governor, lost. So I think it's time you can go back to your car dealership and be be happy that you you've tried. But He's we the have Harold Stassen of Ohio, the Harold Stassen of Ohio, um, and Mike Dewine, who is a very normal Republican, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he is more normal than John Kasich. Uh, yeah. He is yeah. a that's main, a, that's that's not the high bar that you make it sound <laughs> damning no. damning with faint praise. Um, uh, but Mike Dewine. I, from my childhood living in neighboring West Virginia, I, you know, Mike DeWine has been a fixture of Ohio politics for sure. 30 years, yeah. 25 years. So anyway, you see two storylines here. One of the things that happens, of course, is the good thing about electing somebody senator is that they go away, <laughs> right? So J.D. Vance, if he does, be, if he beats Tim Ryan, which is an open question, um, if he beats Tim Ryan and becomes U.S. senator from Ohio, Ohioans will be able to enjoy uh, his antics remotely. They'll be able to uh, to watch it on television and see it on Twitter. If you elect a, a weirdo or a, a, a bloody fanged nationalist as your governor, it has consequences, right? It has consequences yeah. for whether the road to Ashtabula gets finished. It has consequences for how things are run. So I think there's a difference there. And by the way, that confronts Trump in Nebraska next week where uh uh, Herbster, his candidate, uh, who's been accused of some Trumpian behavior with women, um, that he, 
if he is the governor of Nebraska, that has consequences for a lot of things, including like the football team. So this mm -hmm. is, you know, this this, beco this becomes big stuff. So I think people have different attitudes about who they'll send to the Senate, looking at you, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, versus who they would want to have as their governor. Um, and then the last thing I would say about J.D. Vance is I realized something in watching him give his uh, ex uh, acceptance speech or his victory speech. He reminds me a lot of Bill Clinton. He mm -hmm. reminds me a great deal of Bill Clinton. And, it, and I, I had thought that even before they played Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow for his walk-off music, that here is a guy of humble origins with, a, with an origin story, if you will, as Bill Clinton did, The Man from Hope, from uh, this poor part of America who goes on to these great achievements, who's obviously very bright and does all of these things, and then returns home, Bill Clinton returned to Arkansas as a crusader. Uh, and he and J.D. Vance returns home as a crusader. And then I listened to his speech as he was attacking the establishment in both parties, which he said that they should be in jail, which I look forward to him explaining to Rob Portman why, why Rob Portman <laughs> should, should be in custody. Um, but his attack on the establishment in both parties is like a weird triangulation. It's like a weird nationalist triangulation. He is saying that I'm against the Republican Party and the Democratic Party as currently constituted, and we're going to find a third way to do this. And it really, it struck me that it's 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 from a very different direction, but it's got a lot of the same energy. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear I hear what you're saying. At the same time, Bill Clinton, you know. Uh, you know, he had a radar that was yeah, yeah. incredibly sophisticated for spotting women who had too many drinks, but it was also really good at figuring out where the median voter was, where the yes. centrist voter was, right? And and sometimes it got him to say ridiculous, you know, sort of uh, tautological things like, you know, I, I tried marijuana. I smoked marijuana, but I didn't inhale they didn't you know, that inhale. kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, I agreed with the arguments of those who oppose the Iraq war, but I would have voted for it. Um, uh, I mean, we, we forget some of the triangulation greatest hits. Um, but one does not get the sense that Vance has anything like a similar granular grasp of where the persuadable middle of the road voter is do you i mean i don't get that do you? I, I i think in ohio he think i think i think jd vance and tim ryan are uh, addressing the same thing and i find this is again why i find so funny about these politicians rob portman is august he is a a he is an establishmentarian uh he is a mount adams cincinnati uh, I, I, you, you wouldn't call him a blue blood, but he's a, he is when Joe Biden says, this isn't your father's Republican party. Uh, Rob Portman is definitely everybody's father's Republican that's party. Right. That's right. He and would it, eat Cincinnati style chili at Skyway, but, or whatever that's called Skyway. Is it Skyway? What is it? It's well, not. there's, there's gold star and there's, uh, skyline skyline. Sorry. Apologies to my Ohio friends, Jack Butler. Don't shoot out my port like porch light. Um, but you could see him Again. eating. Again, you can see him eating, you know, chili over spaghetti five ways with a knife and fork, um, and a napkin. Multiple that, that the napkins would be well placed. He maybe a lobster bib of some kind <laughs> with a um, chili bowl on it. I'm yeah. into it. But um, I just I find I find it funny that 
J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan describe an Ohio electorate that is like uh, the video for Billy Joel's Allentown mm-hmm. uh, and that that this the, these depressed, uh, ruined humans that need their champion. I'm like, yeah, but they just picked Mike DeWine again. Rob Portman was a popular. I mean, he he outpolled Trump. Rob Portman outpolled Trump in Ohio by like 14 points. Yeah. Um, I think that both Vance and uh, Ryan have identified the core swing group, right? Can they motivate these uh, white working class voters that they're both really fixated on? But I would also say, and I was watching this with uh, uh, the Dolan vote coming in on Tuesday. There's a lot of lot of normal people in Ohio, right? Yeah, There's, yeah, yeah. Uh, suburban Cincinnati, suburban Columbus is a f- uh, fast growing, prosperous uh, city. It is not living in the sh- the shadow of a rusting steel mill like where I grew up. Um, yeah. It is so Ohio is different than they think, but I do think JD Vance is learning, and I think that part of what he's selling is that he's lying, right? Part of the JD Vance yeah. sales pitch to normals is. Yeah, much like with Bill Clinton. I don't mean a lot of this stuff. It's some stuff that I have to say. So don't worry too much about it because I know a lot of mainstream Republicans who are very confident now that Vance, as he moves into the general election, those his speech didn't sound like it, but as he moves into the general election and if he were to be in the Senate, would revert back to like the third iteration of J.D. Vance as practically minded uh, Republican politician. Yeah, I'm 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 more skeptical of that. I'm kind of with Pod on this that that um, um, Vance. I mean, I hate using this phrase, but he's sort of been red pilled in the sense. That yeah, I think he now um, he started out not believing the BS that came out of his mouth, and now I think he believes it, um, which happens to a lot of politicians. Yeah, um, but no, it's funny about Ohio. I I I I put this up for years. It's like, with the exception of California, which is like really really big. And maybe Texas. Ohio has more cities that an average American could name, yeah, than probably any other state in the union, right? I mean, it's just it's, and some of it has to do with popular culture because you know we you know heard of Toledo because of Mash, you know, um, but it you know it has a lot of cities, and when you have a lot of cities, you have a lot of suburbs. Yep, and you would think that the suburbs would be a bigger driver of this. I mean, you hear more and more that the transformation of rural America entirely into Republican voters counteracts the power of cities and suburbs. I, I I have to be skeptical of that, at least in terms of the extreme versions of that, because part of the definition of rural areas is that there aren't a lot of people in them. That's what makes them rural. In, in a presidential, in a quadrennial year, Half of the electorate is and lives in a sub, in a suburban area right. uh, that goes up in a midterm. Uh, it is the decide. It, it's sort of like when people people talk about the suburbs. It's like talking about the Catholic vote. Well, who will win the Catholic vote? Uh, it's the other way around. Whoever wins, right. whoever wins the election is going to win the Catholic vote because there's so many Catholics, right? right and they're right. so diverse, and they run the gamut from social justice liberals to Opus Dei conservatives, and you know whatever. Um, the idea it, here's here's the way i look at it republicans are obsessed with a kind of alchemy that they want to produce a governing coalition that doesn't include the suburbs because the suburbs are annoying and the mm-hmm. suburbs want rob portman not jd vance the suburbs are 
they are focused on the kids are wonderful because kids make us normal. They make us behave like normal people uh, and not hooligans. Uh, and when people have the reason people move to the suburbs is to have kids or because they had kids and kids are uh, the civilizer. They are the barbarians who force us to be civilized. Right. And those uh, suburban voters are going to say, well, that's interesting about how we're going to drink the blood of the elites and Hollywood and Peter Thiel will sit on a crown of uh, on a throne of skulls. That's fascinating. But uh, I need you to work on bringing prices down uh, and uh, energy costs. And I have a lot of concerns about the schools. And I also want to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And that's not nearly as much fun as saying we're, we're going to have everything we want. So in both parties, Repu Republicans keep rejecting the suburbanites. The, and when they show up at the Democratic Party, very often the Democrats are not able to accommodate them. They're not willing to say and do the things that are necessary to become a majority party uh, in a real sense. If the Democrats walk out of the period of 2012 to 2025 without having forged a majority out of the just foolishness of the Republican Party, the just stone cold dumminess of the Republican Party in this era, that is on them. That's nobody's fault but their own if they can't figure out how to make a majority coalition when the Republicans are basically like, here, take my money, handing right. them these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, like, again, we're not going to get back into the abortion stuff, but if the Democratic Party took the position that in the first, again, I'm not advocating this position, I'm just stating it as a political matter, you know, if the first, trim first trimester is basically totally legal, second trimester, there's some real restrictions and regulations and third trimester um you really have to have a super compelling medical emergency need to have an abortion that would capture my guess is seven out of the ten of, of well we know we know what americans we know what americans want uh our carly uh, uh our carly, carly our our colleague uh and emeritus scholar at the american enterprise institute carlin bowman's work on this uh shows us where we are on the question which is that americans basically Look, you have to you have to piece together. This is sort of like the immigration debate. Uh, it's it's very much like the immigration debate in the sense that there is a majority position, right? right. Uh, and Americans want, and this will sound strange to some, but what Americans want is a European style approach to abortion. Yeah, I which, mean, European regulations are basically what I just described. Exactly, which is to say that abortion, the the most popular position that you can get to with American voters is basically, abortion is legal in the first term for elective reasons, right? You can have an elective abortion in the first term, but after that, really, you can't, right? Mm -hmm. Like that if you haven't made up your uh, made up your mind after 20 weeks uh, that you have missed your opportunity to have an elective abortion. And that is where it's like on immigration. We know what Americans want. Americans want strict enforcement of existing uh, immigration laws and a pathway to citizenship for the people who are here illegally but haven't committed other crimes. Right. That's a 65-70% position too. The problem is that in our particularly broken duopoly, the incentives are not to solve the problem. The incentives are to keep the issue uh, and to gin up the base and raise money. And I can't imagine how much money Planned Parenthood has taken in in the past week. I just, I mean, it yeah. was just staggering to think about the money that Democrats and Democratic aligned groups have raised over a thing that 
was nothing, right? I mean, it's some interesting cues and certainly the issue of whether the doc who leaked and all that stuff is is interesting and important. John Roberts uh, is right in talking about the credibility of the court. But, you know, how, you know, was it a hundred million dollars? I don't know, but it was a lot of money. Yeah. So um, I want to get move on to Pennsylvania, but one last thing on Ohio. Is Vance a lock? No, he uh, look, I would I'd right now I, I, I'm going to have to look more closely. It will depend on the climate and it will also depend on. So Tim Ryan is sort of the um, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy uh, who was the quarterback for the Rams when they won the Super Bowl uh, this year. But the guy who has underperformed consistently someplace else. Right. And then maybe he shows up in this new role and he's really suited for it and wins. So he was a guy who had played for the Lions. He had been sort of a journeyman. He had been a, a, a youthful uh, uh, future star who then didn't deliver. And the Tim Ryan story is that Tim Ryan was ahead of – he he replaced uh, Jim Traficant uh, in <laughs> in Congress. <laughs> peace, peace be upon Jim Traficant. Um, the uh, – I. Youngstown is a complicated place, and uh, perhaps if organized crime uh, in America was real, it might be a place where there was some of that. Uh, Youngstown has a weird uh, has a weird polity, uh, but he, Tim Ryan was early to where a lot of Democrats have gotten to about being opposed to the wokesters, being opposed to this stuff, and being a blue collar working class kind of Democrat. But as he would take on, threaten to take on Nancy Pelosi, he got a lot of airtime. He got a lot of attention, but it was always a fizzle, right? Mm -hmm. And his congressional career didn't add up to much. And he was always sort of uh, a near but not – he was good but couldn't quite get it done. He now faces his moment because the, the national discussion is now where Tim Ryan was. He is the shoe, he was the shoe in nominee. There not even really any kind of pressure from the left. He will have a united Democratic Party behind him. And now we'll see it, does he have a pitch that can work with suburban voters? Can he do this? JD Vance is going to be very well defined, right? Mm. To in the minds of Ohio voters that he will be synonymous with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did well in Ohio, um, but a lot of there, there's been uh, there's been a lot of water down the Cuyahoga since uh, 2020. I don't know how popular Donald Trump really is in Ohio today, but that's basically J.D. Vance's ceiling. He's not going to do any better than Donald Trump would do in Ohio right now. Uh, and he also carries a lot of baggage with him. So I, I would say Vance is favored because of Ohio being so Republican now uh, and the fact that if he can just basically be housebroken, Right. Yeah. If he can basically be if he can shut up a little bit that Portman and Dolan, like I, I think that the Republicans will get if 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 Vance will behave, the rest of the Republican Party will get behind him and push him over. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll we'll get to see now whether he wants yeah, to. But, act but that would mean that he would have to delay drinking um, blood mead out of the polished skull of Rob Portman. Um, until after it's, the election, which which slows you down. And the other thing that he'll have to do, he is a like a super fanboy for Tucker Carlson, yeah. and he will have the the uh, he will have to not uh, tan his scrotum uh, in very public ways uh, for a period of time. He's I, I noticed that when they brought up the feed, 
I was uh, I was on News Nation doing the election night stuff, and they brought up the feed, and they were all watching Tucker Carlson, and I thought, yeah, that's uh, that'd be about right. That would be <laughs> if you. That's where we're getting our news. Okay, here you go. Um. All right. So quickly, because uh, I know you got a heart out. Um, Pennsylvania. Um, is it still anybody's race? Is so I mean, McCormick's like Vance, right? He's a guy who used to have certain views, and now he's outsourced them to Trump. Um, he's got oh, a lot of deep pockets behind him. And that's not fair. That no, I would say McCormick is like um, Glenn Youngkin. Um, McCormick, okay. he's he's a tr- he he certainly uh, no, you know who he's like um, uh, in. Tennessee. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Haslin or whatever. no, no, not Bill Haslam. Uh, no, the like guy who the guy who was a, um, a Bush ambassador who reinvented himself. Haggerty. Um, oh, yeah. Hire all the Trumpos. Say the Trumpo stuff, but you're winking while you do it. Glenn Youngkin had a little more bottom uh, than that, but yes, McCormick reinvented himself. He is a Pennsylvanian, but he is a uh, do you know the name for somebody from Connecticut? I'm obsessed with this. A Connecticutan. Is that right? Is that great? Is that not fantastic? And that then it makes me, like a feature of a regional app issue of Playboy. I like. Oh, that. Well, I was going to say hi to all the Connecticuts and Connecticutans out there. Um, so he, so he was a, you know, he's a crazy rich hedge fund guy, but he, but he also has. Uh, distinguished record of public service and military service and did all that. So McCormick is, is he is faking it. I I'll give him credit to say that he's faking the Trump stuff. He hired Hope Hicks. He hired whatever, like, I think he's making a, a more obvious play for that stuff. Um, and that's probably why the, one of the reasons why Trump picked Mehmet Oz, uh, who will tell you, uh, what grapefruit seeds can do for, uh, for your inner, for your uh, internal organs. I think he, Trump knew that McCormick probably was not that sincere. The in, What makes Pennsylvania interesting is Pennsylvania is a, uh, a substantially more democratic state than Ohio is. But it has a lot of the same voter demographics, uh, except for the fact that Philadelphia is a big, people forget that Philadelphia is a big city. Uh, and I mean, there are the, a lot. The, the old Carville line is it's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in the middle. That's right. The, the like people that. talk about the T. Uh, though Western Pennsylvania has gotten a lot less reliably democratic, right? So you're down to basically mm-hmm. where it's just the city of Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh suburbs are now reliably Republican for a lot of issues. We could talk about Nancy Pelosi's mistake on cap and trade in 2010. But for a lot of reasons, uh, it, the, uh, the Western Pennsylvania has gotten a lot more Republican since Carville was talking about that. But the Democrats have a, are at a weird position. They their base seems to have really fallen for Fetterman, their lieutenant governor, who's weird, and uh, his weirdness is his selling point. Right? Mm-hmm. He is. He looks like a progressive. He look. He looks like he is the sommelier at a experimental restaurant that is a pop up in a warehouse uh, somewhere in Fishtown. Right? He's like edgy, uh, and he's a big guy. And he doesn't talk or look like a typical politician, which is a big selling point. But he's also been sort of not on the level about what his real politics are. Is he a Bernie Sanders progressive, uh, mm-hmm. as some people think, and as Connor Lamb, who is running against him for the Democratic nomination and struggled? So uh, maybe I'll make it simple. 
Congressman Connor Lamb, Democrats should nominate Congressman Connor Lamb to have their best chance uh, in Pennsylvania as the safest choice. Republicans should nominate McCormick in Pennsylvania to have their safest choice. They should pick the guys, guys in ties, right? They should pick the normal seeming people to have their best chance. Um, Fetterman versus Oz, if it were to turn out that way, is a weird, totally unpredictable race, right? Yeah. Um, Oz is a horrible choice because, so I'll put it this way, the choice of Herschel Walker in Georgia for Senate is an unnecessary risk that mm -hmm. will probably work out, right? right? It's a high probability of success because if the Republicans were to run um, a pet rock against Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Raphael Warnock is probably going to lose because he is not just a Democrat in a Republican state. He is a liberal Democrat in a Republican state. So I wouldn't have picked Herschel Walker if I was a Republican to run in Georgia, but it will probably work out because he's famous and he doesn't really have to run, right? People just say, oh, I love Herschel Walker. Okay, fine. That's not Mehmet Oz, right? Mehmet Oz moved to Pennsylvania to do this. He's weird. Uh, and he has, ne like Walker, never done this before. Running for the United States Senate, never done this before. And you can tell that he's wound a little too tight. So we could end up in pencil. If, if it's Fetterman versus Oz, it's like jump ball. Like I, that's the one I want greedily for myself to watch the weirdest possible election in Pennsylvania. So that's what I'm rooting for is the weirdest possible election in Pennsylvania. But pulling back, um, if you were going to Vegas right now and had to bet the line, Republicans take back the Senate and, and and take back the House comfortably, right? Yeah, I think my number probably now has. So it's interesting. Biden's numbers have inched up a little bit uh, mm -hmm. and the generic ballot has tightened a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so the number if I was just going off, if I, if, if I was doing a straight line projection off of what the um, generic House vote was, I would actually be coming down and would be more like at 25, 26 seats in the House. But I also feel like there is a defeatism that is coming in with the Democrats that is going to make it hard for them to get people to the polls. Yeah, yeah. Because people have been have been talking about it now. We will have for a year been talking about since since Virginia. We will have for a year been talking about how Democrats are hosled uh, and that's that's the disaster. So that has a suppressant effect on turnout uh, in unto itself. I, I feel like basically they Republicans could get to 40, 41 seats in the House. It's possible. The Senate is harder. Um, the Republicans should be able to win in New Hampshire. Maggie Hassan going to the border uh, clearly indicates that she is a person who is aware uh, of what's going on in her state. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada should be in trouble. Um, but Republicans can't seem to, and Arizona, Arizona is the, is the most obvious boner, right? This right. is the most obvious where it's a state where they should have a good candidate lined up and ready to go. Doug Ducey should be running for, uh, Senate in Arizona and, and flipping that seat easily. But because of the weirdness about the election and because of Trump and all of that stuff, Ducey knew that if he ran, it would be, if not a suicide mission, just a punishing, awful yeah. experience to have to go. And basically, this is why the Kemp, the Brian Kemp election in Georgia is the it's it's the microcosm of the whole Republican issue uh, this cycle, which is there's no reason that the Republicans should be contesting a primary 
in Georgia with a popular incumbent governor. There's just no, there's there's no reason to do it. And by the way, when you listen to Purdue, who is a real dud as a candidate, but when you listen to Purdue, he doesn't know why he's running either. Yeah. He's running because he is he's mad or that Donald Trump told him to or whatever, but there's no reason for this primary to be taking place. And all it does is just suck money from other races and suck effort from other races and divide Republicans unnecessarily. This is the problem. If Donald Trump said, you know what, I'm back in J.D. Vance, it's an open seat. I'm back in Mehmet Oz, it's an open seat. I'm back in so-and-so, it's an open seat. Uh, Charlie Herbster in Nebraska, it's an open seat and I'm back in it. To do that kind of stuff is just to do to go against its sitting incumbent who's popular is just lunacy, and yeah. I think that's where the I think that's where the problem the, the fault lines are. So it's funny. Like, um, do you watch Ozark? I have really avoided it because I increasingly close find. It, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> my money laundering ring is, was in, uh, unsuccessful in West Virginia because we were doing it with Mountain Dew, and uh, you know, we're turning it in for the code red. But no, I I now find Jason Bateman as a result of listening to their podcast Smartless. I find him so tedious now that it really he he now presents a problem for me. Oh, that's too bad. Okay, because yeah. I I do not listen to their podcast. Um, it makes me love Will Arnett more and more. But Jason Bateman is now. I'm like, bro, come on. Will Arnett's fantastic. Anyway, I, no spoilers. I just we my wife and I just finished it last night. But like, one of the driving plot devices of the entire last two seasons is how the wife Laura Linney who's needs great to, needs to raise hundreds of millions of dollars um so that she can be a power broker in the Midwest and it's like it's a very dark vision about how politics works it's also in many ways a very stupid vision but that's fine it let it roll over you that kind of thing and I was just like I turned to my wife and I was like you know if if we cleared ten or fifteen million dollars, um, never mind one hundred and fifty, two hundred, like our ambitions are so humble. Like uh, you know, buy a really nice house where you have a lot of dogs, and like go to fly nicely to Europe and that kind of thing. Purdue is worth millions of dollars. Yeah, I just I do not. Maybe it's just my lack of ambition. Like I want the dispatch to succeed. I do it as a labor of love as much as anything else. Um, but like. If you gave me a hundred million dollars, I could make sure the dispatch succeed, even if I didn't file copy as often. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You'd be like, we're we're gonna we're gonna scale back the uh, G file count a little bit. And I just don't get the people, any of these people. I mean, who think it is just that important to be in the mix that they're willing to well, humiliate themselves? And how about how about our business? How about the no, people our in our business? These people, yeah. Where you're like. Really? You're doing a Facebook television show? You're rich. Like, I can, you, I've told you the joke before, but a friend of ours in common was uh, up for a massive contract, television contract. And uh, I said, you know why I'd never get a three-year contract? You know why I would never get uh, a three-year contract uh, for that much money? Said, oh, no, you're very good. And I said, no, 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 no. It is because after I got the first tens of millions of dollars they would never see my fat ass again i would be long i would be long gone for those last two years no yeah. no thank you but these people who are rich and are famous and they have to keep doing it and yeah. you're like hey guys go hang out life is really good if you let it be i i am willing jonah as an experiment to allow myself to become shockingly rich 
just to prove that I will be just, I'll be playing golf. I'll be grilling meats. I'll be chill. It'll be great. I might write some books, you know, on my timetable. I I do think that particularly men, when they hit retirement, if they don't have hobbies to keep them busy, they tend to drop dead. And so I I think about that quite a bit. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I expect, I expect I will have to work until I die. But even if I did not have to work until I die, I suspect I would never be able to give up writing. Uh, I would never be able to give up writing. It's just, you know, it's it's what I, it's who I am, man. My podcast schedule would become more erratic if I. Yes, uh, well, I think we would have a podcast if, if either of us got really rich. We would ha- we would have a podcast, and it, we'd do it from remote areas, uh, right. and, and we we would say like, and we and we would like do the guided uh, ham and wine tour of Spain with Steve Hayes. It would be, mm-hmm. it would be great. It'd be great. Yeah, and 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 there'd be lots of opening instead of greetings, dear listeners. There'd be lots of. Suck it. I'm in Fiji. Um, <laughs> exactly. Losers. It, you know? Exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, I just I just find it sort of astonishing. The, the you know, I mean, we know this about a lot of people who don't go on TV anymore for the money because they are richer than Cretius, right? I mean, Sean Hannity has been flying private for years. Oh, he's um, rich. He's rich, yeah, he's rich. Very rich. And so, like, they do it because, like, it's their identity. And like, every night. Right, yeah. And I just I just find it exhausting. I mean, Giuliani. Have you seen the video of Giuliani pitching to do cameos? Um, oh no! I saw him on the Masked Singer. That was bad enough. No, he's, no, 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 no. He's no. doing this cameos. Is, yeah. So for listeners who don't know, cameo is like this service where you pay um, on a sliding scale depending on who the, hundreds of dollars. Yeah, between 50 who the and, has been yeah. is or the never was was, and all that kind of stuff. And there's some people, you know, who are more important than others uh, who do it. Um, but you, you know, you pay them, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever it is. And then Seb Gorka will wish your grandmother a happy birthday, right? Happy um, birthday from Dr. Gorka. Um, not since Gavrilo Princip <laughs> changed the world order. Has there been a birthday as important as this one? Happy, birth- happy birthday, Nona. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Giuliani, he looks terrible. He's standing at a golf, uh, like at, at the at a golf tee kind of thing, swinging a golf club back oh and forth, um, like it's uh, he's trying to pr- prove physical aptitude to a, a, a you know uh, uh, a nurse a discharging nurse at a yeah yeah, at yeah, home yeah kind of thing and it's and he's like we can talk about golf we can talk about just and it's really really sad but he's got legal bills because Trump I was going to say him. I was going to say that different. Rudy yeah. Giuliani I. I, has has convinced me that he is broke. That is yeah, that yeah. is what Rudy Giuliani has convinced me is that he is broke and that he is one of these guys who live like when in t- 2008 and he's at a law firm. He's like every, it, it's clear that he's got the trajectory. And now you're like, oh, you just wreckage uh, when the yeah. when that hat came off on the Masked Singer and he looks like he looks like dracula's cousin right he looks like dracula's poor relation who's like hey vlad you let me hang out for a minute i would be helpful if you could spare a little blood for your relative and he looks so terrible and it's so miserable and you just think how did you not know after you lost in spectacular fashion that presidential run that it was time to get serious and figure something out but instead basically he just burned another decade of yeah. being of of trying to be whatever that is. Yeah, I mean John Ashcroft, bless his heart. Ain't nothing wrong with that. 
plenty of things to criticize him for or praise him for and all that kind of stuff. My wife worked for him. Um, she was the one who brought the snakes in every morning for the handling. Um, <laughs> I joke. I joke. Easy. Easy. I joke. I think he's. I actually think he got one of the most unfair treatments in the media oh. of anybody in the last twenty years. Um, because he the was fake story about covering up the fake story about covering up yeah. the bare-breasted statue. Like he was such a punching bag, and yeah. that was really unfair. And for listeners who don't know, uh, Washington Post, there's a big story about how Ashcroft, the supposedly Comstockish, prudish guy, had uh, some neoclassical statue of a bare-breasted woman covered up for because he was such a prude or whatever and the reality was was that the washington post and the new york times photographers as a matter of practice when they would take his picture it would try to frame it so that a nipple was in his mouth and to embarrass him and um um and it's like one of those little sort of media bias things that um you can't really get a whole column out of usually but like if, if for understanding why Republicans resent the media sometimes, it's the little things like that that really Dan um, Dan, Dan Quayle with. the the er one of those Dan Quayle and the potato the yeah. the misspelling of potato yeah 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 all right so uh, but anyway my only point was that Ashcroft with dignity went off he runs some sort of consulting firm kind of thing and last time I saw him on cable news was probably eight years ago and I but, hats off. But, let me let me make a, an obvious but important and often overlooked point. Speaking of Ohio and J.D. Vance, Cincinnati is named for George Washington because he is the American Cincinnatus, Cincinnati, the Roman right. the, the Roman general who, given the powers of a dictator, handed them back to the Senate, which was because the Senate, of course, had hoped that he would stay as a dictator because it takes the pressure off them. They can just, you know, go to orgies and uh, and and drink wine and it'll be fine. And then they can blame him. And then when he has trouble, you know what you do with the dictator? The Praetorian Guard just kills him. It's real simple. And Cincinnati said, no, I'm giving you that. He did what? So the, one of the great moments in human history is George Washington goes to the state house in Annapolis where the Continental Congress is sitting and he hands his sword in and says, I'm done. Congratulations. Good luck. I hope you become a country. Uh, I'm going. And you can see I'm gonna go make his, whiskey. I mean, you can see in his remarks that he scratches through, leave public life forever. And he's like, well, maybe not forever. <laughs> like maybe if you called, I might come back. But we venerate George Washington and what he did in surrendering power as the general of the Continental Army and also leaving after two terms because right. it's rare. Because the human tendency is to to be on it like stink on you know what and to just stay and stay and stay and say that it's me. Our tradition, one of the worst things about Donald Trump is that we have a great tradition about former presidents leaving. Mm -hmm. They have to go, right? And they're not supposed to go comment on public life and they're not supposed to be a part of stuff. And you're supposed to let the new people come on and do it. And when I see, and it's not just with the president, it's a standard attorneys general, it's a standard governors, it's a standard everybody ought to hold themselves to. I had my shot. I did my thing. It worked or it didn't work, but now I'm going to let somebody else take a turn. And part of the problem in our politics is the shamelessness of people just staying for like, uh, no offense, Joe Biden shouldn't be, shouldn't yeah, have absolutely. been in public life, right? right. He should have said, ah, I miss my, I miss my opportunity and it's time for Democrats to move on from me. But this belief, as Trump says, I alone can fix it. This obsession with 
the and I think this is tied in with the authoritarian business, but like act like Jan, John Ashcroft, go write hymns with uh, Orrin Hatch or uh, perform with Orrin Hatch, R.I.P., another gentleman of the Senate, uh, yes. and and go enjoy the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. Which is what I'm going to do on a smaller retail scale with the rest of my day, uh, <laughs> Doctor Starwalt. It is always a it is a joy and a privilege to have you here. I greatly appreciate it. Um. And uh, obviously, we're going to have you back again because you are a break glass in case of emergency pundit. I'll be, I'll be in here uh, coiled up like a fire hose, my friend. All right. So uh, Professor Starwalt has uh, left the studio, and it's always great to talk to him. And um, uh, I hope this satisfies people's cravings for rank punditry for at least a little while. Um, and uh, again, be great if people could become a um, member of the dispatch community. Just, you know, I, 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 there's some memo somewhere saying I'm not supposed to say subscriber, but subscribe, you know, that would be great. Um, you get access to all sorts of awesome stuff. You could watch the dispatch live um, shows, which are every Tuesday night, uh, knock on wood. And um, that was my skull. And um, other than that, I'll see. We got some great shows lined up, you know, coming this month. And, um, I'll see you next time. Come on, man. No, you won't. This is a podcast. I have to uh, renew my station's force field on Starfleet, Star Trek Fleet Command, and then we can go. Okay. Um... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.